Would you pray with me? Loving God, may you be in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our bodies, that we may know that you live and that we may provide room for you to live in us. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes we forget how things begin, how things get set in motion. For instance, if you think about the Puritans and pilgrims who originally came to this land for religious freedom, it only took a few decades before they started condemning people as witches. They started tending people with creative theological ideas like Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams to the barren wilderness of Rhode Island. It only took a moment before they started establishing a theocratic state that actually imposed restrictions on religion. And don't you think there was a thoughtful Puritan or pilgrim among them who maybe said, wait, wait a second. I think we may have missed our original point. Or you think about it when you look at Congress or the Supreme Court and decisions like Citizen United or the ways that lobbyists and corporate interests play into our republic, sometimes you think our politicians may have forgotten that we were formed as a democratic republic and not as a capitalist state. But before I get too political on Easter morning, for those of you who maybe don't come here regularly, you think about the schools in our area, all over the country actually, like Harvard or Boston University, that were established for religious principles. In fact, Harvard College said it was founded for the training of ministry that we would not leave an illiterate ministry while our present ministers lay in the dust. And yet, when we look at these grand, pluralistic, often secular universities, we wonder if people remember the origins, the kernel of faith, the idea that set these things into motion. That's what Paul was worried about when he wrote the letter to the little church at Corinth. And it hadn't even been generations or centuries since they had started things out. It had only been a few months or years. He's very fervent in this letter. He goes on for quite a long time. He talks about many things as they're all trying to figure out what it means to be Christian, what it means to be followers of Christ in this new era. It's not clear to them. They're making up some of the rules as they go along. And in this church, they had conflict, as you will have in any religious institution, any community. They got stuck, and he speaks to that. He talks to them about what kind of food they can eat. If it's blessed by the pagans in in this culture, can we still eat it, even though it's sold in the marketplace? He has beautiful chapters that we love to go to about love, that it is patient and kind and never fails. And even if you can preach wonderfully or prophesy to all get out, the only thing that matters is love. Or the chapter that we've read a couple times in here about where he talks that we are all parts of the body of Christ. Some of us are the ears, the eyes, the feet, the brain, and yet we all have an important role to play. But he saves his crowning argument for the very last chapter about the resurrection, of how important it is that they get it, that they believe it. He's concerned about right belief, and I think he's concerned about right belief so that it might lead to right practice. Of course, the Corinthians were very sophisticated spiritually, and the idea of bodies being raised from the dead 
all of them at once, perhaps, was abhorrent to them. They didn't like this. The problem when we read these kind of letters is we only hear one side of the, the conversation. We don't hear what they had to say. But I have to say that in many ways, I think the Corinthians won out with us. We are less interested in the body resurrection than we are in the spiritual resurrection. What Paul talks about later in the chapter when he says, we will put away mortality and put on immortality, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. It's a hard thing, the resurrection. Many of us struggle with it, how it plays out in our lives. If we actually believe that Jesus walked out in body form out of that tomb. Some of us have no trouble with it. Some of us question it again and again and again. It's an important question to wrestle with, as Paul would tell you, because it is a bedrock for our faith, that we are a resurrection faith, one that starts again. If you read the four gospel accounts, which we are not giving you this morning, you can see that even they can't agree on quite how it happened. You and I would love to have some proof occasionally, perhaps a YouTube clip we could click on and see how it actually happened. But even then, we might pick at it. What were the camera tricks there? Who's trying to pull this over on me? What conspiracy theory is at work? Later on in this paraphrase, Paul will say, some skeptic is sure to ask, show me how the resurrection works. Give me a diagram, draw me a picture. What does this resurrection body look like? Now, if you look at this question closely, he writes, you will realize how absurd it is. There are no diagrams for this kind of thing. We do have a parable, parallel experience in gardening. You plant a dead seed, and soon there is a flourishing plant. There is no visual likeness between the seed and the plant. You could never guess what a tomato would look like by looking at a tomato seed. What we plant in the soil and what grows out of it, they don't look anything alike. The dead body that we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different. He goes on to say that you will notice that a variety of bodies are stunning. Just as there are different kinds of seeds, there are different kinds of bodies, humans, animals, birds, fish, each unprecedented in its form. And you get a hint at the diversity of resurrection glory by looking at the diversity of bodies not only on earth, but in the skies, the sun, the moon, the stars, all these varieties of beauty and brightness. And we're only looking at pre-resurrection seeds. Who can imagine what the resurrection plants will be like? This Lent, we in this congregation have been looking at our relationship with creation, what it means to be in right relationship with creation, how we can enjoy it and partake of it more fully. These words of Paul rang out to me about this idea of seeds and plants and variety of creation around us as perhaps a way to understand the resurrection. And certainly from the winter we experienced I took heart in this, just as I am taking heart walking outside and seeing blades of grass coming to life again and tulips and crocuses trying their best to make their way through. It's very convenient in the Northern Hemisphere that Easter happens when it does. It helps us understand the resurrection a little better. But I would say that you and I have seen bodily resurrection. 
We just need to know how to look for it, how to encourage it every day so that Christ actually might walk among us. The Spirit of Christ, the Christ being in our midst. I would say that you and I have seen bodily resurrection when a child who is struggling in school and can't seem to get it finally has that teacher or that person who understands a learning disability that has gotten in their way and they start to understand what they're being taught and the light goes off and they find their way in their own education. Or I would say we have seen bodily resurrection when a person who has been lonely finally gets some love in their lives, that someone cares about them, sees them for who they really are, and even desires them. There's a new spring in the step. There's a new smile on the face. There's even a tendency to whistle or giggle or laugh. Or one of the ways we see it in modern culture is when people go into recovery, when they face whatever addiction whatever dampening and numbing of pain they may have to face how they are getting sucked up into something beyond themselves and call on a higher power. This past week, a good friend of mine who's celebrating 15 years of sobriety from what he calls booze and drugs wrote, I think for those of us who miraculously find our way through addiction or alcoholism, it becomes clear that dealing with life on life's terms is only the very beginning. That sadness, darkness, celebration, joy, anger, and longing are things that are here to teach us about ourselves and the world around us. And I would add even the ways that God works within us. If we heighten, deaden, or alter those experiences, we risk missing the lessons. There are no overnight magic pills, only showing up and doing the work and letting time itself do its thing. It took a long time for the fog to clear and for me to begin to take stock of my life, and it remains a sloppy process, not a neat and tidy one. But I'm thankful for the long game and for the many people who were there for me. There's no end to where and how we can grow if we learn to feel in our lives, listen to ourselves and others, and face the things that scare us. We are free to find our own way. For whatever works we are in progress, we are perfect in our imperfections. So I say, here's to spring, and to all those who suffer secretly and quietly, hiding in the darkness of their tombs. It's safe to come out. It's wonderful out here. You're thankful when Facebook gives you something to share in your sermon. I wrote him and said, that's an Easter story if ever I heard it. This last winter, we lost a dear saint in this church, someone who, from the time I got here, had been in, in and out of hospitals and rehab and home health aides, who struggled valiantly in many different ailments that always seemed to hit a different part of her body at different times. And those of us who sought to comfort and minister to her, many people in this congregation who took her meals just as she had welcomed people into her home with hospitality, we became discouraged. We began to wonder. Even she began to question her deep faith in what was going on. It was a very real struggle. As she came to her last hospitalization, the brilliance of the medical complex over there to keep life in our midst hit a wall. 
And it was one more test after another, and one more procedure after another, and she wanted it to stop. And we began to pay attention to her. And eventually, she left us with a great legacy of her life of serving others. This experience caused me to look to this bestseller of this past year written by a surgeon from the medical complex, Atul Gawande, on being mortal. It's a book about what happens as we get older, as we die, or we come to end-of-life issues, something that doctors have been talking about for a long time in certain quarters, but we have not yet gotten on the same page. The book is an attempt for us to really understand clearly, to prepare, and to be humane in the process. I have to say, as we got more and more entombed by the snow this summer, I found some of these chapters hard to read. Until a few weeks ago, I turned to the chapter called A Better Life. And I share this story with you. It's about Bill Thomas, a guy who was the best salesperson in every school contest for sales, whether chocolates or calendars. He was also a terrible student who they thought would never amount to anything. Today, they might say he has oppositional deviant disorder. If he didn't like the assignment he was given by a teacher, he would tell the teacher so and refuse to do it. But something took off in him. He went off to a state school, and he got a 4.0 average. And then he went off to Harvard Medical School, and he loved it. He loved being there and all the discussions about all the cases. He was not intimidated as a working-class boy from upstate New York by all the brilliant minds and self-important people around him. But he worked very hard. They hoped he would go on to a fellowship or some sort of specialty, but he said no. He wanted to go back to upstate New York and practice medicine among the people with whom he grew up. And so he went back and worked in the emergency room. He also started a farm in which he raised his own land and eventually became pretty much off the grid because he felt sustainability and his own self-autonomy was one of the best and most authentic lives you could lead. Eventually, he got tired of the ER and the long hours and the shift, and he decided to work in a nursing home. And when he got there, he was shocked and appalled by what he saw. It was lifeless. People just waiting. People who had lost hope. The head nurse said, eventually you'll get used to it. But Bill wasn't that type of person. And so he decided to do something mad, naive, and brilliant. He began to imagine, what if we brought more life into this nursing home? What if we brought animals and plants into this nursing home? He scared the staff. They weren't ready to accept this. And in one conversation sitting down with the nursing director, it went something like this. She brought in with her the activities leader and the social worker, and they're all sort of rolling their eyes. And the nursing director says, OK, I'm not really into this as much as you are, but I'll put two dogs down. This is to apply to the state for a grant. And Bill immediately said, now what about cats? And she said, what, what about cats? We've got two dogs down on the paper. He said, well, some people aren't dog lovers. They like cats. You want dogs and cats. He said, well, let's put it down for discussion purposes. OK, I'll put a cat down, she said. No, 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 we're two floors. How about two cats on both floors? Yes, just put it down. So she put it down. I think we're getting off base here, she said. This is not going to fly with them. 
He said, one more thing. How about birds? She said that the code clearly states, no birds allowed in nursing homes. And he said, but what about the birds? And she said, what about birds? He said, just picture. Look out your window right here. Picture that we're in January or February. We have three feet of snow outside. What sounds do you hear in the nursing home? And she said, well, you hear some residents moaning. You possibly hear some laughter. You hear televisions on in different areas, maybe a little more than we'd like them to be. And you'll hear an announcement over the PA system. And he said, what other sounds are you hearing? And she said, well, you're hearing staff interacting with each other and with the residents. And he said, yes, but what are those sounds that are the sounds of life? Positive sounds, positive life. She looked over her glasses and said, you're talking bird song. <laughs> yes. How many birds are you talking to create this bird song? Bill said, let's put 100. 100 birds in this place? You've got to be out of your mind. Have you ever lived in a house that has two dogs and four cats and 100 birds? And Bill, who believed in possibility, said, no. But wouldn't it be worth trying? And as Lois, the nursing director, said, now that's the crooks of the difference between Dr. Thomas and me. They applied, and miraculously, they were approved. And the day the parakeet showed up, he just dropped them off in the beauty salon and left them there. No cages. And it was chaos. It was madness. And as he writes, we were patently incompetent to handle this. Everyone dropped their guard. But eventually, the residents teamed around and just laughed and laughed and laughed. And eventually, people figured out how to clean up after these animals and take care of them. Residents started signing up for feeding and cleaning duty. And people who they didn't believe were able to speak started speaking again. And people who had completely withdrawn and couldn't move started offering to take the dogs for a walk. And all 100 parakeets were adopted and named by the residents. And the lights turned on in people's eyes again. And the stones were rolled away. And they eventually got rabbits, and laying hens, and vegetable gardens, and on-site childcare, and an after-school program. In another place, the residents would then work as tutors with the school librarians. World War II vets would go to the classes and teach them about their first-hand experiences. Fifth and sixth graders would have fitness classes along with the residents. And middle schoolers would start working with, with people with dementia in a buddy program even invited to speak at a man's funeral as his buddy. Where Dr. Thomas had seen boredom, there was now spontaneity. Where there was loneliness, there was now companionship. Where there was helplessness, there was now a chance to take care of someone else. And life came back into a place that had seemed dead, or very close to it. I believe in our lives we all have some boredom 
and some loneliness and some helplessness that will come our way. But I also believe that Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And I believe if we're willing to re-engage with the living things among us, the stones can be kicked away. The angel can enter in. The light can come in. And some of us are required to be those stone kickers and those angels that we might know what it means to live again. It's true. We could say it's all just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. But if we're willing, I believe that the light will raise us up again and we will live anew. Amen.